Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church. It's 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 the privilege of our lives to gather like this to worship our Lord, to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. This is why we were created. This is our ultimate purpose in life, and we find it here as God's people together. Well, it's cozy today. We're gathering. We're in this tight place. We're we're uh, supporting our, our Mandarin and, and Cantonese congregations by giving them the the sanctuary this morning, so they can have a special service, extra long service. And we're all going to gather afterwards, if you can, for for a all church picnic. We're all invited to that. We hope that you'll join us for that. Well, this morning it's my privilege to to invite up Minister Matt Lau, who who preaches at our church as often as we can get him. He grew up here, and, and God's using him in various ways. Welcome, Minister Matt, as you proclaim God's word to us. Good morning, everyone. I appreciate the invite to come speak with you all again. Uh, as usual, I enjoy every time I'm able to come visit to share the word of God with you all. Uh, today is going to be a little different than usual. I don't have slides. And that's because I kind of want you to pay extra attention through hearing what I'm going to say as we kind of go through a specific story. Uh, and the way I, I'm going to preach is actually different than my usual style. So this is trial and error here. So you all get to be my guinea pig crowd for this. Um, but first, by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the word uh, vulnerability before? Okay, most of you, well, some of you are even vulnerable and trying to raise up your hands there. Okay, um, how many of you actually know what it means okay even even less hands than that I, i'm not really surprised i mean me saying that word up here as an asian guy saying this to an asian church you must be thinking of the world's ending right that i would bring up this word of vulnerability here from the pulpit and you know i'm not surprised it's not a word that gets brought up often uh in our conservative christian background especially an asian background um, because it can often just be associated with weakness, which is a no-no, especially when you're supposed to be strong in the faith. Or it could be associated with feelings, um, when you're supposed to be better than the volatility of feelings. Uh, or maybe it could be associated with the philosophies of um, secular culture, like self-help and things like that. So, so we try to stay away from that in, in this kind of setting. But um, being in hospital chaplaincy this past year, I've had the opportunity to think a lot about this topic um, because the people I work with, patients in hospital rooms, they're in a vulnerable state all the time. So I thought more about vulnerability and me and my fellow um, chaplains, we've been reading this book and there's one particular quote that kind of stuck out to me about vulnerability, um, which I wanted to share. It's vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. Once again, vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. And vulnerability is not a weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. And this was... <coughs> Sorry, it is by an author, Brene Brown, in a book that we read uh, as, a, as a group called Rising Strong. And when I thought about that definition of vulnerability, as compared to all the preconceived notions of vulnerability that I mentioned before, I come to realize that when we look at a lot of the different characters in the Bible, especially in the gospel stories that Jesus interacts with, a lot of them engage 
with vulnerability a lot more than we thought. For example, you have the woman with a bleeding disorder for many years, not knowing how things were going to turn out, <laughs> she went and grabbed Jesus' cloak and was healed. And he said that her faith healed her. Then we have Zacchaeus, the guy on a tree. The guy on a tree looking ridiculous, trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he went to Zacchaeus' house. And as a result, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. And the last story that I thought of was the woman that's going to be in our story today, the one that we went with, that we're going to read later on. And we're going to see that vulnerability in there is very present. And just like with the other two characters I named, Jesus responds to her act of vulnerability surprisingly. He receives it really well and in a way kind of rewards her in it. So I, I, I wanted to, to kind of hone in on that idea and to go deeper into that third story this morning. And as, as I mentioned before, I'm doing things a little bit differently, so I don't have my usual like three three bullet point three bullet point like outline leading to one particular idea but what i want to do is that as we look at this passage which is in luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50 so if you're a bible i invite you to open that up because like i said i don't have slides so time to work for a living today uh open your bible apps or your physical bibles and go to <laughs> sorry luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50 and what you're going to notice is that even though as I preach, we're going to go forward into the text. What we're going to realize is that when we go forward through the text, we're, to go, we're actually going to go backwards in terms of her experience with her faith, backwards in terms of her experience with Jesus. And hopefully you'll be able to see this come through as we, as we go forward through the passage. So to kind of like lay the groundwork for this, the passage we're going to look at is going to show us a woman who engages vulnerability through her faith. Then we're going to learn that this display of faithful vulnerability is an act of love due to her thankfulness. And then we will discover that this thankful love is in response to the forgiveness of her sins, making possible her salvation. So we're going to see a woman who engages vulnerability through her faith then we're going to learn that this display of faith that she does is actually an act of love due to her thankfulness. So going back and to go back even further, that this thankful love that she shows is in response to the forgiveness of her sins, making possible her salvation. So we keep going back and back and back. So I'm going to pray first and then we'll get through the text one section at a time. And then we'll go from there. So let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, I just thank you for giving us this beautiful day that you've uh, that you've molded, that you've created to allow us to come together as one body to worship you. I pray, Lord, that you grant me wisdom by the power of the Holy Spirit to share the message that you have intended for each one of our hearts today. And I pray that this message, especially as it revolves around vulnerability in a, in a specific character, uh, it could shape and mold us. Uh, and allow us to live lives that are fuller in you uh, for the rest of the week, Lord. So once again, I just thank you again for this opportunity to just share this word with my brothers and sisters. And uh, yeah, we give you all the thanks you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, and in case I forgot to, before I forget to mention, the actual title uh, of this message is The Sinful Woman, the Self-Righteous Pharisee, and the Forgiving Jesus. The Sinful Woman, 
the self-righteous Pharisee and the forgiving Jesus. <laughs> I feel like I have to bring that up now because they're going to point that later on in the conclusion. So just wanted to put that out there. Okay. So the first section, which is verses 36 to, <coughs> sorry, 40. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the air, hair of her head and kissed his head, feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. So first section. Now let me set up the context, or at least some behind-the-scenes behind the kind of info regarding what we just saw here. Jesus was invited into the house of a Pharisee. Now, normally, house protocol of hospita hospitality back then dictates that if you have a guest coming to your home, there are three particular things that you generally want to do um, for this guest. There's usually a kiss of greeting, uh, a washing of the feet, and anointing with oil. So keep those three things in mind, that usually if you're a host and you invite a guest to come over, one of the things that you do as a hospital, hospitable host is kiss of greeting, washing of the feet, and anointing with oil. Now, we can see from this passage that the Pharisee, at least the Pharisee did not do any of these things. He didn't. Now, I'm not sure if the Pharisee intentionally tried to shame Jesus by not being hospitable in this sense, but at the very least, this was a result, a ramification of the Pharisee's negligence to Jesus. Okay, so in a way, it kind of seems like the Pharisee, through his actions, is passively judging Jesus, which will actually seem in sync later when we see the judgment of Jesus in his mind later on. Which let's not gloss over the fact that Jesus actually read his mind. Jesus read his mind, but that was the Pharisee and Jesus. That's their relationship. That kind of sets a tone. All right. Not that high of a bar in, in, in order to surpass. Now we hear we have a woman that comes into the picture. A woman that has a bad reputation, not just from the city, um, not just from Luke the author, but interestingly enough, as I read more about this passage, I realized that there are many scholars out there as well that kind of have a poor opinion of this woman designating her as a prostitute just because she lets out lets down her hair. Uh, apparently that's um a trademark of prostitutes back then and i've only come across one resource that actually says that well maybe she wasn't a prostitute maybe this was just an act of devotion on her part but either way i think the intent is that people are supposed to have a very low opinion of this woman she's a sinful woman okay but i think what actually stuck out to me regarding this woman is that her faith which jesus will clearly explicitly mention later on led her to approach Jesus in her vulnerability. Led her to approach Jesus in her vulnerability. That's what her faith did. So to recall what um, that vulnerability quote before said by Brene Brown, 
Vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when you have no control over the outcome. So in other words, to be vulnerable is to take on risks. You take on risks, not knowing how things are going to turn out. That's, that's why it's a risk, which is, is what she do, does here in this passage. She risks judgment and rejection. Can we all agree that? That by going into this setting, she risks rejection and judgment for being a sinful woman in the presence of religious leaders, right? For, for, for letting down her hair, which, like I said before, it was a trademark of prostitutes in the day. So imagine a prostitute, a well-known prostitute, coming to the presence of religious leaders. Man, you'd expect her to be stoned on the spot. But, but she decided to do that anyway. She decided to be vulnerable. She decided to cross boundaries, especially the unsaid boundary of being a sinner who touched Jesus' feet. So by a show of hands, how many of you find it hard personally to be vulnerable and enter a situation risking judgment and rejection for your faith? Okay. So, yeah, it's hard. It's very hard. And I figured that would be the response I would get um, because it's not easy. After all, judgment and rejection, it can be scary as it could lead to shame, making us feel worse about ourselves. And who wants to lean into that? Who, who wants to actively, voluntarily choose to feel worse about themselves? So we do our best to avoid situations that could lead us feeling vulnerable. But as Christians, as Christians, who are called to love God and love others, we are called to dwell in a very vulnerable space, whether you like to believe it or not. I mean, aren't we taking a risk of incurring judgment and rejection every time we reach out to a friend with the gospel, <laughs> right? Uh, or maybe when we choose to sit out when all your friends want to do something that would be counter to your beliefs as a disciple of Jesus. As Christians, we are regularly put in the position to take risks, not knowing the outcomes and considering how some of us grew up, that's not easy. We grew up in a very safe environment. We grew up in an environment where we, we need to have control. We need to know the outcome. Everything's got to be perfect. Everything's got to meet certain standards. So to be vulnerable, to take a risk, to not know the outcome, that's hard. And I'm sure that's true for many of us, including myself. Now, on another note of vulnerability, by a show of hands, how many of you find it hard to risk emotional exposure, such as crying in front of other people? Okay, so I'm assuming everyone who didn't raise their hands love crying in front of other people, right? Okay. <laughs> but just the fact that people are, are scared to raise their hands just speaks to the vulnerability of the people in this room. Do you get that? That's the thing. You know, and when it comes to emotional exposure, um, it seems, I think given the culture that many of us grow, grew up in, um, if the situation doesn't exactly call for it, like the sadness of a funeral or, or, or the, the happiness of a graduation or wedding, 
weed resists all inclination to show any emotion at all. Because if it doesn't make sense to show emotion, we won't do it. But it seems that for this woman, she became unhinged in the presence of Jesus. She became unhinged that her emotions just overwhelmed her. And she didn't care what anyone else thought. She didn't hold back. She allowed her love for Jesus to bring her into a space of vulnerability before Jesus. Do you get that? Like, with Jesus in front of her, she's like, it doesn't get any safer than this to be with Jesus. That's as safe as it gets. But how many of us feel that way? How many of us feel that way that when we're in the presence of Jesus, when we're worshiping, when we're in prayer, do we actually feel safe to be fully honest with ourselves in the presence of Jesus? And it makes me wonder, when was the last time I had a moment like that with Jesus? Or maybe for you, when was the last time you had a moment like that with Jesus? And, and I know that sometimes we get iffy when talking about emotions, especially in situations where we feel like, okay, they can be easily manipulated, which is something to be careful of, which I totally agree. You know, emotions can take control in ways that we wouldn't expect. But here, Jesus has indicated that her displays of emotion through the tears, through the wiping of her hair, the kissing of the feet, and this is continuous. The, the, um, the Greek language in which this is originally wrote in, um, there's a there's this sense of continuity regarding the actions that she's doing. She's continuously doing this. The, all this is an act of love tied to her thankfulness, which goes on to, which Jesus goes on to explain in the next section of the text. And the sex, second section is from verses 41 to 47. Okay, so let me read that section. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them <coughs> will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, and I feel like I can't gloss over this part. He was talking to Simon. He's still having this conversation with Simon, but he's turning towards the woman, right? So try to picture that in your head. Not so much a disrespect that he's showing the Pharisee by having the conversation with him, but not looking at him, but show how much care that he's showing for the woman as he does this. He's turning towards her while still talking to the Pharisee. It's kind of wild, isn't it? And in a way, that kind of puts Simon the Pharisee in a vulnerable space. Um, but who knows if he knows it? So turning toward the woman, he continued speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? This is how he responds to her vulnerability, by looking at her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
you gave me no kiss. From the time <coughs> I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus decides to respond to the Pharisee's thought in his head, right? Because even though it was not said out loud, Jesus was like, I can't let this pass. We're going to deal with this. So he decides to respond to the Pharisee's thought, which keep in mind, like if you should have any thoughts that Jesus feels like needs to be addressed, don't be surprised if he actually addresses it with you. Um, he decides to respond with a parable that involves three characters. And I think you could try to take a guess in terms of who each character in the parable represents. With one character being the money lender, one character who owes 500 denarii, which is like a year and a half's worth of wages back then, and another character that owes 50 denarii, which is like one month's worth of wages back then. So I'll let you take a wild guess as to who is who in this story. But this, the key thing to note is that in this parable, Jesus correlates the degree of forgiveness that a person has been shown to the degree of love that will be shown by that same person. Let me repeat that one more time. That in this parable, Jesus correlates. There's a relationship. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a graph bar, you know, like. Uh, there's a direct correlation, X, Y. Uh, it's been a long time since I did math. Um, or geometry. Anyways, uh, Jesus correlates the degree of forgiveness that a person has been shown to the degree of love that will be shown by that same person. So if I did have slides, I'd have a graph chart. And then as you go further down the graph bar, you know, as you get higher degree of forgiveness, you'll get higher degree of love from that same person. And even though that's not explicitly mentioned here in this passage, any scholar will tell you that the X factor, the X factor, the variable that makes that correlation possible is thankfulness. Thankfulness or gratitude, however you want to think of it. The thankfulness that one experiences from being forgiven makes room for love in a person's heart. Or another way of putting it, sometimes it's hard to love when there's no thankfulness in that relationship. Sometimes it's hard to love when there's no thankfulness in that relationship. Now, I'm not saying that all loving relationships are founded on the cornerstone of thankfulness. That's not what I'm saying, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But on a practical level, I'm going to ask you to do this. Think of two relationships in your mind. Take a second. Maybe you know, hopefully you know more than one person. <laughs> so think of two relationships in your mind, right? Where one relationship, you're thankful for the person. You're thankful for the person in your life. And in the other relationship, eh, not so much. <laughs> you're thankful for one person, the other person, meh. Which person is going to have more love coming from you? Which person is going to have more love coming from you? 
And this principle doesn't just apply to your relationship with God, but it can apply to your relationship with others. And that's unfortunate since as followers of Christ, we're commanded to love God and to love others. And it's unfortunate if you're not thankful for anyone, but I'll get further into that. So I was fortunate to have someone help me find this quote from pastor, author, and conference speaker, Paul David Tripp, from one of his uh, Thanksgiving devotionals, okay? Paul David Tripp, and it says this, if you fail to carry around with you a heart of gratitude for the love you've been so freely given, it is easy for you not to love others as you should. If you fail to carry around with you a heart of gratitude for the love that you've been so freely given, it is easy for you not to love others as you should. And maybe you can relate to that quote. If you did what I did before and thought of those two relationships, then yeah, you should be able to relate to this quote. So you find it hard to be thankful so you can relate as you find it hard to be thankful, whether it be to God or for the people he's put around you. And because you find it hard to be thankful for them, you find it hard to love them. As a result, when you're around them, you armor yourself up. You armor yourself up and you shut those people out. For example, maybe you forgot to be thankful that God didn't give up on you in your worst moments. And because of that, because for forgetfulness of that thankfulness, you're less likely to love others who are also going through their worst moments. Or, or maybe it doesn't have to be so drastic, right? Uh, how, about we how about we forget to be thankful that God graciously is patient with us in our impatience so we are less likely to love others who are going through the same thing. So when a brother or sister in Christ is impatient, Rather than be thankful that God is working in them too, just like he's working in, in you, and to love them as you go through the process that you're going through, we judge. We judge. And, and I'm sure that there are plenty of everyday examples like that that I'm sure they could think of if you took the time to really think about it. Instead of being thankful and loving as a result, we judge. We forget. We forget and we judge. So if we were to take this principle and to bring it back into this passage, it would seem that the woman, the sinful woman, as the author so clearly stated, understood that she had a lot to be thankful for, which is why she loved so much. But as far as the Pharisee goes, by his actions of basically no love, just judgment, it seems that I don't think he forgot. I don't think he just, I think he was just in full denial of anything that he needed to be thankful for. Meaning he didn't really feel the need for much forgiveness. He was good. He was chill. I mean, it's only 50 denarii, right? It's only 50 denarii. It's not like her 500 denarii. It's easy to feel good about ourselves when we compare with people who are subjectively worse than we are. It's harder to be thankful when we judge ourselves by our own standards rather than by God's standards.
So this begs me to ask, how thankful for are you for the forgiveness and love that Jesus showed you on the cross? How thankful are you for the love that Jesus showed you on the cross? What does your love look like to him in response to that forgiveness? When you think about when you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, for that, how many hours in the day is there? Uh, okay, so let's say, assume you sleep for eight hours. For that 16 hours that you're awake, if you're lucky. <laughs> um, what does that love look like towards God during those 16 hours? Hey, maybe you're loving God while you're dreaming. Who knows? Maybe you're going the full 24 hours. Well, what does that love look like? Right? Are you as vulnerable as this woman who expressed utter devotion going above and beyond normal hospitality rules, like I mentioned at the very beginning, in the presence of Jesus? Or are you stone cold like the Pharisee who couldn't even bother to do the bare minimum for him? Because according to the parable and Jesus' commentary after the parable, your answer to those questions will indicate how you see yourself and how much you understand your need for Jesus' forgiveness, which, frankly, we all need. We all need that. So as I said before, the parable was clearly about the both of them, and yet only one of them correctly understood the reality of her situation. The other guy... The guy who grew up in church, not so much. Also notice that he didn't mention the Pharisee directly, <laughs> right? Like, he didn't say, um, okay, but you who is forgiven little loves little. He said, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus keeps his general. And... I'm not surprised because there are other people that were there at the table. So maybe this was a maybe this was a message for them too. And I have no doubt that in a way when he says for he who is forgiven little loves little is a meta warning for all of us today. And those who are watching at home so this leads us to the third section, which also includes verse 47 again, but runs through 50. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. We kind of hammer that home again. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, if you read this right through very quickly, you might be under the notion that her works right there, those acts of love, works of love, might have led to Jesus saying, your faith has saved you, or yeah, your faith has saved you, which might lead you to think that her salvation is by works, but no, 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 no. <laughs> nope, that's not the case here. Um, because like Jesus said, 
it's your faith that saves you. But even more importantly, and John Piper has a pretty good treatment of this text on this confusing issue on his website, desiringgod.org, which you're free to watch. It's like a 12-minute video. Um, what he points out is that if you were to look at what Jesus was saying, especially the part where he says, um, therefore I tell you your sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. All right? He, he's not saying that her sins are forgiven because of what she did for Jesus. The reason, what he's actually saying is that, that her, the, the, her many sins are forgiven, and this is evidenced by the fact that she loved much. Okay, do you see that distinction? Like, one's cause and one's a result or evidence, right? Um, I think the example that uh, John Piper gives on his website is that um, there was a house that collapsed because there was an explosion. Another way to look at it is there was a house. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, there was a house that exploded for I saw it explode, meaning that um, in one case, the way you can interpret the use of for is that it was causal, that she was forgiven because she loved much. She was forgiven a lot because she loved much. Or another way to think about it is that she was forgiven much, and we know this because she loved much, or as evidenced by the fact that she loved much. So another way, all this to say is that you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. And her works are a manifestation of that faith here in this passage, okay? Um, if there's any more confusion, you can ask Pastor Nathan afterwards. He'll give you a full lecture on that, okay? Um, and I want to conclude with this. Oh, uh, well, also, to kind of tie things up together, her saving faith has led her to engage in vulnerability as an act of love derived from her thankfulness. And then I'll conclude with this. I know that based on my message, you'd be tempted to think that this passage was about the woman, given the fact that I spent most of my time talking about her vulnerability, uh, her love, and her saving faith. Um, but actually, bigger picture-wise, that's not the case because technically she's one of two debtors. One of two debtors. There's a reason why my message is entitled The Sinful Woman, The Self-Righteous Pharisee, and The Forgiving Jesus. There are three people involved in the story, and the main character is not one of the debtors. The main character is the moneylender. The moneylender. It's about Jesus and the message that he's pointing out as the moneylender, as the forgiver of sins, as the one who died on the cross and rose again. He's the main character. And as the main character, as the one who's observing what's going on with these two people, he's pointing out to them and to us that at the end of the day, you can fall into one of two camps in response to his forgiveness. You could fall into the camp of the sinful woman where you recognize the gravity of your debt of sin, the need for forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus offers, your acceptance of that, resulting in a saving faith that is evidenced by acts of love dipped in vulnerability. You could fall in that camp. Or you could fall into the camp of the self-righteous Pharisee where you don't recognize your need for Jesus. 
you pretty much snub him and judge everyone else. And you don't end up going in peace. So the final question to us is, which debtor are you? Which debtor are you? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I thank you again for bringing this story to light, Lord. Your forgiveness, um, which brings us faith and salvation, which is why we gather, Lord, as Pastor Nathan mentioned in his prayer earlier. We gather because of you, and when we lose sight of that, we forget why we gather. So I pray, Lord, that during this time that you speak into our hearts, tell us which can't we fall in, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we strive to love you more, to not be afraid to be vulnerable, and to act in faith, Lord, because it is a gift from you. I pray that whatever change, <coughs> changes in our lives that we need to make this week, may you be so gracious as to do that in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, and may we continue to glorify you in this process. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.